Hello, and welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe God works through people every day to help us. These people are selfless and so very humble. The majority of us don't even know they exist or existed. My name is Angel, and each podcast I will showcase one of these amazing people. Their stories will uplift, inspire, encourage, support, heal, and give you hope. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. If you're new to the show, thanks so much for finding us. I so hope you will enjoy your time here, and I also hope that you'll go back and listen to the previous shows. There's so much here for just about everybody. And if you're returning, thank you so much for your dedication and patronage and for continuing to keep coming back. I so much appreciate it. Hello, everyone. I know this one's going to run a little long, so please feel free to make yourself a nice cup of tea or coffee. Grab your favorite blanket and snuggle up in your favorite chair or sofa as we learn and discover a little bit about the life and legacy of St. Therese of Lisieux. So St. Therese's story begins with two people, her mother and her father, Luis Martin and Zelik Guerin, uh, both before they met, uh, were trying to become monastics. Uh, Luis, or Luis, uh, I don't know how you pronounce that, but uh, we'll just call him Luis. Uh, Luis tried his best to become a priest or a monk and uh, was turned down, and Zelie tried to become a nun, and she was turned away as well. The two eventually met uh, in Elencon, on July 13th, 1858. Uh, Louis was 34 and Zelie was 26. They married and began their remarkable voyage through life. Within the next 15 years, Zelie born nine children, seven girls and two boys. Zelie wrote, we lived only for them. They were all our happiness. The Martins' delight in their children turned to shock and sorrow as tragedy relentlessly and mercilessly stalked their little ones. Within three years, Zelie's two baby boys, a five-year-old girl and a six-and-a-half-week-old infant girl, all died. Zelie was left numb with sadness. She said, I haven't a penny's worth of courage. But her faith sustained her through these terrible ordeals. In a letter to her sister-in-law, who had lost an infant son, Zelie remembered. When I closed the eyes of my dear little children and buried them, I felt sorrow through and through. People said to me, it would have been better never to have had them. I couldn't stand such language. My children were not lost forever. Life is short and full of miseries, and we shall find our little ones again up above. The Martin's last child was born January 2nd, 1873. She was weak and frail, and doctors feared for the infant's life. The family, so used to death, was preparing for yet another blow. Zelie wrote of her three-month-old girl, I have no hope of saving her. The poor little thing suffers horribly. It breaks your heart to see her. But the baby girl proved to be much tougher than anyone realized. She survived the illness. A year later, she was a big baby, browned by the sun. The baby, Zellie noted, is full of life, giggles a lot, and is sheer joy to everyone. 
Death seemed to grant a reprieve to the Martin household, although suffering had left its mark on mother and father. It was not the scar of bitterness. Lewis and Zelie had already found relief and support in their faith. The series of tragedies had intensified the love of Lewis and Zelie Martin for each other. They poured out their affection on their five surviving daughters, Mary, who was 12, Pauline, who was 11, Leone, who was 9, Celine, 3, and their newborn, Louis, Louis and Zelie named their newborn Marie-Francoise Therese Martin. A century later, people would know her as St. Therese and call her the Little Flower. So again, Therese was born January 2nd, 1873, and baptized two days later on January 4th. All my life, God surrounded me with love. My first memories are imprinted with the most tender smiles and caresses. Those were the sunny years of my childhood. Thus, Therese, 21 years later, described her home life in Alencon, France. My happy disposition, she added with characteristic candor, contributed to making my life pleasing. The Martin household was a lively place. Therese's father, Louis, had a nickname for each of his daughters. Her mother, Zelie, wrote her relatives constantly about the joys each child gave her. Therese was the baby and everyone's favorite, especially her mother's. Due to Therese's weak and frail condition at birth, she was taken care of by a nurse for her first year and a half. Because of this care, she became a lively, mischievous, and self-confident child, but Zelie was not blind to her baby's faults. Therese was, she wrote, incredibly stubborn. When she has, when she has said no, nothing will make her change her mind. One could put her in a cellar for a whole day. Therese's candor appeared early and was unusual. The little one would run to her mother and confess, Mama, I hit Celine, her sister, once, but I won't do it again. Little Therese was blonde, blue-eyed, affectionate, stubborn, and alarmingly precarious. She could throw a giant-sized tantrum. Her bubbling laughter could make a gargoyle smile. In a note, Zelie advised her daughter Pauline, she, referring to Therese, flies into frightful tantrums when things don't go just right, and according to her way of thinking, she rolls on the floor in desperation like one without any hope. There are times when it gets too much for her, and she literally chokes. She's a nervous child, but she is very good, very intelligent, and remembers everything. Through it all, however, Therese thrived on the love which surrounded her in this Christian home. It was here where prayer, the liturgy, and practical good works form the basis of her own ardent love of Jesus, her desire to please him and the Virgin Mary. At the age of 12, Therese's sister, Leone, felt she had no further use for her doll dressmaking kit and stuffed a basket full of materials for making new dresses. Leone then offered it to her six-year-old sister, Celine, and her two-year-old sister, Therese. Choose what you wish, little sisters, invited Leone. Celine took a little ball of wool that pleased her. Therese simply said, I choose all. She accepted the basket and all its goods without ceremony. This incident revealed Therese's attitude toward life. She never did anything by halves. 
For her, it was always all or nothing. On Sundays, Louis and Zelie Martin would take their daughters on walks. Therese loved the wide open spaces and the beauty of the countryside about Alencon. Frequently, the walks tired little Therese. This would result in Papa Martin carrying his daughter home in his arms. Unfortunately, the pleasant family times would soon come to an end. The shadow of death that had previously occupied the Martin household once more relentlessly returned. Teresa's mother, Zelie, after an illness of 12 years, died of breast cancer in August 1877. Therese was only four years old at the time. Shortly after his wife's death, Louis Martin moved his family and five girls, ranging in the ages of four to 17, to Lisieux. He rented a home and named it The Hedges. Therese then entered what she termed the second and most painful period of her life. Because of the shock of her mother's death, my happy disposition completely changed, she remembered. I became timid and retiring, sensitive to an excessive degree. Louis Martin and his daughters did all they could to help little Therese, who missed her mother so much. They lavished affection and attention upon the motherless child. As Les Bonnets, under the tutelage of her sisters, Mary and Pauline, Therese began her first schooling. Each day after classes were over, she joined her father in his study. Louis called Therese his little queen. Eventually, the two would go for a walk. They would visit a different church each day and pray before the Blessed Sacrament. The bond between father and daughter grew stronger and stronger. How could I possibly express the tenderness which Papa showered upon his queen? She later exclaimed, her sister Celine, nearly four years older, became her favorite playmate. The passage is all the more remarkable because it revealed the theme of exile which dominated her whole life. Therese maintained the first word she learned to read was heaven. From her childhood, she interpreted all her world as only the beginning, only a glimpse of a glorious future. Sundays had tremendous significance. They were days of rest, tinged with melancholy because they, were, they must end. It was on a Sunday evening this youngster felt the pang of exile of this earth. I long, she explained, for the everlasting repose of heaven, that never-ending Sunday of the fatherland. Therese, given the proper occasion, continued to produce extreme temper tantrums. The following is her own account of one of the most sparkling scenes that took place between herself and her poor nurse, Victoria. I wanted an inkstand which was on the shelf of the fireplace in the kitchen. Being too little to take it down, I very nicely asked Victoria to give it to me. But she refused, telling me to get up on a chair. I took a chair without saying a word, but thinking she wasn't too nice, wanting to make her feel it, I searched out in my little head what offended me the most. She often called me a little brat when she was annoyed at me and humbled me very much. So before jumping off my chair, I turned around with dignity and said, Victoria, you are a brat. 
Then I made my escape, leaving Victoria to meditate on the profound statement I had just made. I thought if Victoria didn't want to stretch her big arm up to do me a little service, she merited the little brat. In October 1881, Lewis enrolled his youngest daughter, Therese, as a day boarder at Le Sous Benedictine Abbey School of Notre Dame du Pré. Therese hated the place and stated the five years from 1881 to 1886 I spent there were the saddest of my life. Classes bored her. She worked hard and loved catechism, history, and science, but had trouble with spelling and mathematics. Because of her overall intelligence, the good nuns advanced the eight-year-old to classes for 14-year-olds. She was still bored. Her keenness aroused the envy of many fellow pupils, and Therese paid dearly for her academic successes. Genius has its price, and the youngest Martin girl was paying it. The ordinary games and dances of other children held little interest for her. She was uncomfortable with most children and seemed to be at ease only with her sisters and very few others. Of all the Martin girls, Pauline was the closest to Therese. Therese thought of her as her second mother. Pauline was the little one's first teacher and ideal. Then one day, Therese's second mother told her she was leaving to enter the convent at the Carmelite Monastery in Lisieux. Nine-year-old Therese was stunned. Again, employing the exile theme, she described her sorrow. I was about to lose my second mother. Ah, oh, how can I express the anguish of my heart? In one instant, I understood what life was. Until then, I had never seen it so sad, but it appeared to me in all its reality, and I saw it was nothing but a continual suffering and separation. I shed bitter tears. During the winter following Pauline's entrance into the Carmelite monastery, Therese fell seriously ill. Experts have diagnosed her sickness as everything from a nervous breakdown to a kidney infection. She blamed it on the devil. Whatever it was, doctors of her time were unable to either diagnose or treat her. She suffered intensely during this time from constant headaches and insomnia. As the illness pursued its vile course, it racked poor little Therese's body. She took fits of fever and trembling and suffered cruel hallucinations. Writing of one bout of delirium, she explained, I was absolutely terrified by everything. My bed seemed to be surrounded by frightful precipices. Some nails in the wall of the room took on the appearance of big black charred fingers, making me cry out of fear. One day, while Papa was looking at me and smiling, the hat on his hand was suddenly transformed into some indescribable, dreadful shape, and I showed such great fear that poor Papa left the room sobbing. None of the treatments helped. Then, on May 13, 1883, Therese turned her head to a statue of the Virgin near her bed and prayed for a cure. Suddenly, Therese writes, Mary's face radiated kindness and love. Therese was cured. The statue has since been called Our Lady of the Smile. It was shortly after Pauline's departure that Therese decided to join her at Lassou's Carmelite convent. She approached the prioress of the monastery and sought entrance. Carefully, little Therese explained she wished to enter 
not for Pauline's sake, but for Jesus' sake. The prioress advised her to return when she was grown up. Therese was only nine years old at this time. During her long illness, her resolve to join the Carmelite grew even stronger. I am convinced that the thought of one day becoming a Carmelite made me live, she later declared. After her illness, Therese was more than ever determined to do something great for God and for others. She thought of herself as a new Joan of Arc, dedicated to rescue not only, only France, but of the whole world. With unbelievable boldness, the 10-year-old stated, I was born for glory, and thus another great theme of Therese's life manifested itself. She perceived her life's mission as one of salvation for all people. She was to accomplish this by becoming a saint. She understood that her glory would be hidden from the eyes of others until God wished to reveal it. At 10 years of age, then, she reaffirmed and clarified her life's goals. She was intelligent enough to realize she could not accomplish them without suffering. What was hidden from her eyes was just how much she would have to endure to win her glory. Spiritual torment was to be her lot for years to come, slackening only when she started preparing for her long-awaited First Communion. At the age of 11, on May 8, 1884, Therese received her first kiss of love, a sense of being united with Christ, of his giving himself to her as she gave herself to him. Her Eucharistic hunger made her long for daily communion. Confirmation, the sacrament of love, which she received on June 14, 1884, filled Therese with ecstasy. Shortly thereafter, though, the young Martin girl experienced a peculiar vicious attack of scruples, which is self-doubt. This lasted 17 months. She lived in constant fear of sinning. The most abhorrent and absurd thoughts disturbed her peace. She wept often. You cry so much during your childhood, close friends told her. You will no longer have tears to shed later on. Headaches plagued her once more. Her father finally removed her from the Abbey School and provided private tutoring for her. During this time, her sister Marie became very close with Therese and helped her to overcome these fears. But Marie, in turn, also entered the Lassoux Carmel on October 15, 1886. This was very hard on Therese, who at the age of 13 had now lost her third mother. After Midnight Mass, Christmas 1886, the shadow of self-doubt, depression, and uncertainty suddenly lifted from Therese, leaving her in possession of a new calm and inner conviction. Grace had intervened to change her life as she was going up the stairs at her home. Something her father said provoked a sudden inner change. The holy child's strength supplanted her weakness. The strong character she had at the age of four and a half was suddenly restored to her. A ten-year struggle had ended. Her tears had dried up. The third and last period of her life was about to begin. She called it her life's most beautiful period. Freed from herself, she embarked on her giant's race. She was consumed like Jesus with a thirst for souls. My heart was filled with charity. I forgot myself to please others 
and in doing so became happy myself. Now she could fulfill her dream of entering the Carmel as soon as possible to love Jesus and pray for sinners. Grace received at Mass in the summer of 1887 left her with a vision of standing at the foot of the cross, collecting the blood of Jesus and giving it to souls. Convinced that her prayers and sufferings could bring people to Christ, she boldly asked Jesus to give her some sign that she was right. He did. In the early summer of 1887, a criminal, Henry Pronzini, who was convicted of murder of two women and a child, he was sentenced to the guillotine. The convicted man, according to police reports, showed no inclination to repent. Therese immediately stormed heaven for Pronzini's conversion. She prayed for weeks and had mass offered for him. There was still no change in the attitude of the condemned man. The newspaper LaCroix, in describing Pronzini's execution, noted the man had refused to go to confession. Then on September 1st, 1887, as the executioner was about to put his head onto the guillotine block, the unfortunate criminal seized the crucifix of a priest offered him and newspaper noted kissed the sacred wounds three times. Therese wept for joy for her first child had obtained God's mercy. Therese hoped that many others would follow once she was in the Carmel. Mary Martin, the oldest daughter of the family, joined her sister Pauline at the Lisieux Carmel in 1886. Leone Martin entered the visitation convent at Cayenne the following year, or is that Cien? It's C-A-E-N, the following year. Therese then sought permission from her father to join Marie and Pauline at Le Sioux Convent. Louis was probably expecting the request, but it saddened him nevertheless. Three of his girls had already entered religious life, but characteristically generous, he not only granted Therese's request, but worked zealously to help her realize it. Therese was not yet 15 when she approached the Carmelite authorities again for permission to enter. Again, she was refused. The priest director advised her to return when she was 21. Of course, he added, you can always see the bishop. I am only his delegate. The priest did not realize what kind of girl he was dealing with. To his dying day, Bishop Huguenon of Bayou never forgot her. She came to his office with her father one rainy day and put her surprising request before him. You are not yet 15, and you wish this? The bishop questioned. I wished it since the dawn of reason, young Therese declared. Louis' support of her request amazed the bishop. His excellency, excellency had never seen this type of support before. A father as eager to give his child to God, he remarked, as this child was eager to offer herself to him. Just before the interview, Therese had put up her hair, thinking this would make her look older. This amused the bishop, and he never spoke about Therese in later years without recounting her ploy. Although charmed by her, Bishop Huguenin did not immediately grant Therese's request. He wanted time to consider it and advised Therese and her father that he would write them regarding his decision. Therese had planned that should the Basu trip 
fail, she would go to the Pope himself. Thus, in November 1887, Louis took his daughters, Therese and Celine, to Italy with a group of French pilgrims. Catholics from all over the world were journeying to the Eternal City to celebrate Leo XIII's Golden Jubilee as a priest. In her autobiography, Therese sketched a charming picture of her travels through southern Europe. In Rome, she was enamored by the Colosseum. Its history of Christian martyrdom stirred the very roots of her being. Once inside the Colosseum, the two sisters ignored regulations prohibiting visitors from descending through the ruined structure to the arena floor, sneaked away from the tour group, climbed across the barriers and down the ruins to kneel and pray on the Colosseum's floor. Gathering up a few stones as relics, they slipped back to the tour. No one except their father noted their absence. The great day of the audience with Pope Leo XIII came at the end of their week in Rome. On Sunday, November 20th, 1887, they told us on the Pope's behalf that it was forbidden to speak as this would prolong the audience too much. I turned toward my dear Celine for advice. Speak, she said. A moment later, I was at the Holy Father's feet, lifting tear-filled eyes to his face. I cried out, Most Holy Father, I have a great favor to ask you. Holy Father, in honor of your jubilee, permit me to enter Carmel at the age of 15. Father Reveroni, the leader of the French pilgrimage, stared stonily at this bold little girl in surprise and displeasure. Most Holy Father, the priest said coldly, this is a child who wants to enter Carmel at the age of 15. The superiors are considering the matter at the moment. Well, my child, the Holy Father replied, do what the superiors tell you. Resting my hands on his knees, Therese continued, I made a final effort saying, Oh, Holy Father, if you say yes, everybody will agree. He gazed at me, speaking these words and stressing each syllable. Go, go, you will enter if God wills it. Therese did not want to leave the Holy Father's presence, so the papal guards had to lift her up and carry the tearful young girl to the door. There they gave her a medal of Leo XIII. Her old nurse, Victoria, probably could have told the Pope he should not have been surprised. Victoria had seen Therese in some rare displays of determination. On New Year's Day, 1888, the prioress of Le Sous Carmel advised Therese she would be received into the monastery, but that she had to be patient and wait a little bit longer. On April 9, 1888, an emotional and tearful but determined Therese Martin said goodbye to her home and her family. She was going to live forever and ever in the desert with Jesus and 24 enclosed companions. She was 15 years and three months old. The only cloud on her horizon was the worsening condition of her father, Louis, who had developed cerebral arteriosclerosis. Celine remained at home to care for their father during his long and final illness. The good father was growing senile. 
Once in June of 1888, he wandered from his home at Lesseux and was lost for three days, eventually turning up at Le Havre. In August, after a series of strokes, Louis became paralyzed. Many years earlier, when Therese was a little girl, she would peer out of an attic window. Therese loved reveling in the glory of the day. One day, however, while her father was in Alencon on business, she suddenly saw in the garden below the stooped and twisted figure of a man. She froze in terror. Papa, Papa, she cried out. Her sister Marie, who was nearby, heard the unmistakable note of panic in Therese's cry and ran to her. The figure in the garden disappeared. Marie assured her it was nothing and told her to forget everything that had happened. But the vision continued to cling like a sad portent in the corner of Therese's mind for the next 14 years. Now, with her father paralyzed, the meaning of Therese's vision in the garden so long ago had become apparent at last. Louis, however, rallied his strength and managed to attend the ceremonies of Therese's clothing in the Carmelite habit on January 10, 1889. Shortly thereafter, on February 12th, Lewis was taken to hospital after an attack of dementia. Seeing her father's humiliation hurt Therese deeply. Oh, I don't think I could have suffered more than I did on that day. With that, Therese began to understand the sufferings of the mocked Christ, the suffering servant foretold by Isaiah. Therese's father made one last visit to the Carmel in May of 1892. He died peacefully two years later in 1894 with Celine at his side. Celine then joined her three sisters at the Carmel in September of 1894. Therese spent the last nine years of her life at Lesseux Carmel. Her fellow sisters recognized her as a good nun, nothing more. She was conscientious and capable. Sister Therese worked in the sacristy cleaned the dining room, painted pictures, composed short pious plays for the sisters, wrote poems, and lived the intense community prayer life of the cloister. Superiors appointed her to instruct the novices of the community. Externally, there was nothing remarkable about this Carmelite nun. Therese was affected by the spiritual atmosphere in the community, which was still tainted by the Jansenism and the vision of an avenging God. Some of the sisters feared divine justice and suffered badly from scruples. Even after her general confession in May 1888 to Father Pichon, her Jesuit spiritual director, Therese was still uneasy. But a great peace came over her when she made her profession on September 8, 1890. It was the reading of St. John of the Cross, an unusual choice at the time, which brought her relief. In the spiritual canticle and the living flame of love, she discovered the true saint of love. This, she felt, was the path she was meant to follow. During a community retreat in October 1891, a Franciscan father, Alexis Pareau, launched her on those waves of confidence and love on which she had previously been afraid to venture. The harsh winter of 1890 to 1891 
and a severe influenza epidemic killed three of the sisters as well as Mother Genevieve, the Lassau Carmel's founder and saint. Therese was spared and her true energy and strength began to show themselves. Therese was delighted when her sister Agnes of Jesus, who was Pauline, was elected prioress in succession to the mother Mary de Gonzo in February of 1893. Pauline asked Therese to write verses and theatrical entertainment for liturgical and community festivals. Included were two plays about St. Joan of Arc, her beloved sister, which she performed herself with great feeling and conviction. When Celine joined Therese of Lisieux Carmel in September 1894, she brought her camera. Through this, they were able to enliven their recreation periods and leave Therese's picture to posterity. And those pictures are still available. You can go online and uh, Google pictures of St. Therese and you're going to see her dressed up as Joan of Arc with her hair down. It's, it's really cool looking. Therese was aware of her littleness. It is impossible for me to grow up, so I must bear with myself such as I am with all my imperfections. But I want to seek out a means of going to heaven by a little way, a way that is very straight, very short, and totally new. Therese went on to describe the elevator in the home of the rich person, and she continued, I wanted to find an elevator which would raise me to Jesus, for I am too small to climb the rough stairway of perfection. I searched then in the scriptures for some sign of this elevator, the object of my desires, and read these words coming from the mouth of eternal wisdom. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. The elevator which must raise me to heaven is your arms, O Jesus, and for this I have no need to grow up, but rather I have to remain little and become this more and more. And so she abandoned herself to Jesus, and her life became a continual acceptance of the will of the Lord. The Lord, it seems, did not demand great things of her, but Therese felt incapable of the tiniest charity, the smallest expressions of concern and patience and understanding. So she surrendered her life to Christ with the hope that he would act through her. She again mirrored perfectly the words of St. Paul, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. All things consisted of almost everything she was called upon to do in her daily grind of life. Life in the Carmel had its problems too, the clashes of communal life, the cold, the new diet, the difficulties of prayer, two hours of prayer and four and a half hours of liturgy. One day she leaned over the wash pool with a group of sisters laundering handkerchiefs. One of the sisters splashed the hot, dirty water into Therese's face, not once, not twice, but continually. Remember the terrible temper that Therese, Therese had. She was near to throwing one of her best tantrums, but said nothing. Christ helped her to accept this lack of consideration on the part of her fellow sister, and she found a certain peace. Again, in the daily grind of the convent life, she was moved by her youthful idealism to help Sister St. Pierre, a crotchety old nun, 
who refused to let old age keep her from convent activities. Therese tried to help her along in the corridors. You move too fast, the old nun complained. Therese slowed down. Well, come on, sister urged. I don't feel your hand. You have to let go of me and I'm going to fall. In his final judgment, old sister St. Pierre declared, I was right when I said you were too young to help me. Therese took it all and managed to smile. This was her little way. Another nun made strange clacking noises in the chapel. Therese did not say, but the good lady was probably either toying with her rosary or was afflicted by ill-fitting dentures. The clacking sound really got to Therese. It ground into her brain. Terrible-tempered Therese was pouring sweat and frustration. She tried to shut her ears but was unsuccessful. Then, as an example of her little ways, she made a concert out of the clacking and offered it as a prayer to Jesus. I assure you, she dryly remarked, that was no prayer of quiet. Therese, the great mystic, fell asleep frequently at prayer. She was embarrassed by her inability to remain awake during her hours in the chapel with the religious community. Finally, in perhaps her most charming and accurate characterization of the little way, she noted that just as parents love their children as much while they sleep as awake, so God loved her even though she often slept during the time for prayers. And this reminds me of a Tibetan uh, story. And that reminds me of a, a really good and cute Tibetan story, uh, Tibetan Buddhist story. Um, there was a great master by the name of Shogun Rinpoche who passed, along, passed away not too many years ago. Um, but he used to tell this story. It's in his book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. I highly recommend it. It's an amazing book. Uh, but he tells the story of Annie Rilu, and Annie was like an aunt to him and like everybody in their village. And Annie would sit in her house in her rocking chair with her mala, which is prayer beads, like a rosary. And she would be praying, constantly praying, all the time praying, day in and day out praying. But Annie would often fall asleep as she was praying, to which elders uh, in the village would often complain and say how lazy Annie was. You know, like, look at her. She's... She falls asleep while she's praying. She's, she's such a terrible practitioner. You know, she's, she's a horrible prayer. And to which, you know, others replied, uh, and another uh, Tibetan elder who was a monk replied, no, you don't, you don't get it. Annie's probably the best uh, prayer person of us all because even when she sleeps, she's still praying. And that's, it kind of reminds me of Therese, which I'm sure when she was in, in church and she would fall asleep during those services and those long prayer hours that they had i'm sure no doubt she was still praying in her sleep saint therese had her first evidence of tuberculosis the illness that would eventually end her life in april of 1896 by the following april she was gravely ill confined to the infirmary of carmel she spent her time at the request of the prioress mother, Mary de Gonzogue, writing out her life story. This manuscript eventually became part of her book, Story of a Soul. It became apparent in the summer of 1897 that Therese would not rally from her illness, 
and she received extreme unction in July. Therese passed at 7.20 p.m. on September 30, 1897, at the age of 24. She died believing that her life was really just the beginning for God, promising to spend her heaven doing good on earth. Her final words were, Oh, my God, I love you. Within months, the Carmelites of Lisieux began to receive reports of favors and graces attributed to Therese. Story of a Soul had been published in October 1898, and pilgrims began to visit her gravesite at Carmel. The cause for beatification and canonization grew at the beginning of the 20th century. Thousands of letters poured into Carmel Monastery in Lisieux. Her canonization took place on May 17, 1925, at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, with 500,000 crowding St. Peter's Square. In 1997, St. Therese was declared a doctor of the church by St. Pope John Paul II, making her the second Carmelite nun to receive that distinction after St. Teresa of Avila. St. Pope John Paul II stated, Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face is the youngest of all the doctors of the church, but her ardent spiritual journey shows such maturity, and the insights of faith expressed in her writings are so vast and profound that they deserve a place among the great spiritual masters. St. Therese's promised shower of roses began at her death and have become a torrent in the church ever since. If you're not familiar with St. Therese, and this is the first time you've heard of her, welcome. <laughs> she's, she's one of my favorites because she's one that time after time after time, she would look at, this is how you're supposed to do this, and this is how you're supposed to do that, and she'd be, Therese was always like, ah, no, I could never do that. There's got to be a smaller way to do that. And that was Therese. She dedicated everything she did in life, whether it was washing a dish or controlling her temper to Jesus. Um, she was constantly doing that. And she was also constantly praying for um, those who have passed. Um, she was very adamant about making sure prayers were offered to the dead, which is so very important. Um, but Therese was just a, a, a mighty machine and a half and and still to this very day. I mean, she's she goes on and on and on. And she's a favorite saint of a lot of Catholics. A lot of Catholics just love St. Therese, uh, the little flower of the little way. So if you haven't uh, heard of her autobiography called Story of the Soul, I greatly urge you to check it out. I'm still going through it myself and it is amazing. I mean, if you enjoyed this brief uh summary of her life, you'll you'll love you'll love the book. It really gets into some really good stuff and and some teachings and sayings by St. Therese which we can all use even still today even though it was so long ago when she passed away um you know, in 1897, it's still all perfectly relevant to today. And we can all learn so much from uh, St. Therese. And, and, and truly amazing. She, she's truly amazing and, and such an amazing inspiration still today. We'll close today with a wonderful prayer to 
St. Therese. And the prayer goes, Therese of Lisieux, you said that you would spend your time in heaven doing good on earth. Pray for me that I, like you, may have a great innocent confidence in the loving promises of our God. Pray that I may live my life in union with God's plan for me and one day see the face of God whom you loved so deeply. I'm always open to recommendations for the show. We have people listening from over 20 different countries, and I know each of you in those countries have a very rich and diverse culture, and I know there are so many people in your country that are truly amazing that we don't know about, but we should know about. So please, please, please reach out to me. Share these people with me so I can share it with everyone there's two ways that you can reach me. The first way is through the website, and that is faithandmorepodcast.wixsite.com slash my-site. And the second way to reach me is directly through email, which is faithandmorepodcast at gmail.com. Of course, links to both of these ways of contacting me are on the website, so check it out. Also, please, please, please don't forget that at the very bottom of the web page is a form that you can fill out to request prayers, either for you, your loved ones, friends, uh, acquaintances, whoever uh, that might be in need of prayer. I love to pray, and I do my level best to pray at all times, and I would love to pray for you. And I would love the show to pray for you and your friends and your family and whoever you need prayers for. So please fill out the form at the bottom of the website and share as much information as you feel comfortable. I will only share what you want me to share. But of course, as you know, the more information you have when you pray, the more you can direct and channel those prayers directly to that person. And of course, the more people we get praying, the more energy and powers behind that to help those people. So please fill out the form so we can pray for you. Thank you all so very much for tuning in and listening. I'm so looking forward to seeing you all again. But until then, lots of love and blessings to each of you. 